Family, as you're finding your seat, I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're continuing looking at this Christmas genealogy, the genealogy of our Savior, our Lord Jesus, this Advent season. So we go to Matthew chapter 1, continue the series looking at a miracle in a manger and seeing how this genealogy of Jesus emphasizes some of those miraculous wonders that happen time after time. So this is what the Word of God says, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. As we look forward to Christmas Eve, just the culmination of the, the anticipation building this Advent season, looking toward celebrating the birthday, the arrival of Jesus on earth. When we look at a genealogy like this, it, it goes without saying how apparent there's this line of miracles in the line of Jesus. There's this genealogy of Christmas that presents this line of miracles, miraculous wonders, one after another. We see it in the story of Abraham. We see it in the story of Rahab. We see it in the story of Ruth. We see it in the story of David. And then ultimately, yes, we see it in the story of Jesus. Just last Sunday, we began out on this series of Advent, and we looked at the story of Abraham, the miraculous promise of God. And now this morning, we look at the story of Rahab, a prostitute. And how through this broken woman of Jericho, there was this miracle of God's protection. That through the mercy of God, there's this miraculous protection that he provides that truly is second to none. So I invite you to go there with me to Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then comes Deuteronomy, Joshua. All the way to the sixth book of the Old Testament, the um, sixth book of the Bible. And as you're going there, I want to remind you of some of the ways we got here. So we looked at Abraham last week. The miraculous promise of God that a nation was needed to bring forth Messiah. So God chose Abram, a man of a pagan culture who had nothing to offer whose name meant esteemed father when he had no kids. And then he changed his name. He inserted the Hebrew word for life and then called him Abraham, which meant the father of a multitude. And he still had no kids of his own. But then came Isaac, the promised child. And from there, as you go through the, the course of the book of Genesis, you see Abraham, then came Isaac, then came Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He had all these sons. And remember, the, the second to youngest son of Jacob, whose name was what? Was Joseph. See, Joseph wasn't liked by all of his older siblings because Joseph, every week it seemed, he got a new starter jacket for his favorite NFL team or NBA team. 
coat of many colors, to the point where his siblings disowned him. They sold him into slavery. But then the way you remember that story there is favory slavery. If there ever was favor in slavery, it was this instance because Joseph, regardless of his circumstances, still continued to trust God the Father. And as a result, even being sold into slavery to Egypt, God favored Joseph's life. He became Pharaoh's right-hand man. You go to the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50. Pharaoh favored Joseph, even to the point where they brought Joseph's brothers who disowned him and his family into Egypt during the famine to provide for them. But then that Pharaoh, who had favor toward Joseph and the Israelites, died. And we come to Exodus chapter 1, and a new Pharaoh is at the helm. And this new Pharaoh did not honor the previous favorable relationship the, the previous one had with the Israelites. In fact, this new Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1, he viewed the Israelites as a threat to his empire, so he cast them all into slavery. For 400 plus years, the apple of God's own eye, the people of Israel, the nation from the father of a multitude of Abraham, in which God was going to bring forth Messiah, was in bondage for 400 plus years. Then came along a murderer and shepherd, 80 years old, named Moses. By the grace of God, Moses was used as a mouthpiece and as a shepherd. The great exodus of the enslaved Israelites. He led the people of God out of Egypt into the wilderness. And the, the goal, the, the finish line, was the promised land. But when Moses, God's anointed leader, took the generations of the Israelites to the promised land to see it and to go enter into it, older generation struggled. When they looked into the promised land, the enemy looked too large. It looked too unfamiliar. It looked too daunting. They knew Moses was called and anointed by God, but they didn't like the way it looked or felt. And as a result, their faith wavered. And as a result, God said, you will wander in the wilderness for decades until this older, faithless generation that should have been the backbone to pass down a legacy has passed away. And now we come to Joshua chapter 1. The leadership has transferred from Moses to Joshua and this next generation is ready to enter into the promised land. And we come to Joshua chapter 1 and I haven't turned there yet because I've been talking too much. Let's see here. And it reminds us what's transpired. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, and here's the great dad joke, by Father's Day next year your kids will forget it. So write this down. Which biblical character had no father? Joshua, he had none. Come on. That's good. That is gold, guys. God's proud we use that. That's, that's good. Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, Joshua. Go over this Jordan, the, the river Jordan. You and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Notice just the, the present condition of that. God is like, there's this promised land. I'm already in the process of giving it to you. It's not a matter of how well you go over there and battle the enemy armies. 
It's just you simply trusting and stepping out in faith. And he, he clarifies it in verse 3 by saying, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. So we come to this book of Joshua, the story of the Israelites, this next generation ready to go in and take the promised land that God was hoping the previous generation would have embraced by faith, but, but they missed out. And now they're ready to go in. And what we see where this connection of God of promise from Abraham has come down all the way through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and now Joshua. And where we saw this miraculous promises of God through Abraham and Isaac, now we see uniquely the God of protection. And a lot of what you're going to see go through chapter 2 of Joshua and throughout this story is that where there's God's protection, it's always closely connected to his mercy. And truly, a miraculous mercy. A mercy of supernatural attributes. What we see specifically in two major ways in the story of Joshua here is that the mercy of God protects those who deserve devastation and the mercy of God protects those who deserve destruction. See, there's this strategic military campaign. There's a mission that these men are called to and they get into a situation you're going to hear about in just a moment where everything about the scenario indicates their mission should be devastated, should be completely ruined. But the miraculous mercy of God steps in and withholds what they deserve in their predicaments. And the second major way we're going to see is in this household of Rahab and, and her family members where they deserve the complete destruction of life because of their pagan lifestyle and who they're associated with. But the mercy of God and the richness of the depths of his mercy step in and hold back the destruction she and her household deserve. So in case you zone out the rest of the message, the miraculous mercy of God protects us from the devastation we deserve and the destruction we deserve. And we see it begin with these spies, this covert operation of sending two spies into Jericho. Joshua chapter 2, the very first half of verse 1. And Joshua, the, remember the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim. That's how you say that word, kids. Don't try to get away, get away with something colorful. Shittim. Joshua sent these men secretly from that location as spies, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. So there's this covert operation. They, they needed to go um, accomplish some reconnaissance, gather some intel. And here's how it would look during that day, the ancient history. You know, different cities would be fortified. They'd have these surrounding walls around them. That was their first line of defense. And the ancient ruins of Jericho show us that they had walls towering anywhere from 10 to 20 feet, and then strategic watchtowers that, that went as high as nearly 30 feet. The, the depth or the width of these walls around the city of Jericho ranged anywhere from 5 to 10 feet. Some filled with solid rock and, and stone and, and rubble. Others were hollowed, hollowed out so you could have strategic positioning of uh, equipment and, and weaponry to defend your city. 
And then the way that, um, that urban planning went, so my civil engineering mind goes to this, the way the urban planning went back in that day, if you had resources, if you were wealthy, the more sophisticated or important you were to the city of Jericho, the further inside the city you lived. The further your home was on the interior of those fortified walls. And the opposite is true as well. The poorer you were, the less connected you were, the closer likely you lived to the actual walls of the city. In fact, even some homes, as this story shows us, some homes so poor were carved out of the slabs of these walls as the slums of Jericho. So what the mission would look like for these spies, it says Joshua sent these two men from Shittim to go find a place to, to access the city and, and to gather some intel. So what that would likely look like is they would take the, the nearly mile and a half loop, walking the perimeter of the city of Jericho. They would sneak around and they'd, they'd try to identify an easy access point. There were different city gates that would open and close at different times of day. But there were also, because the slums were all carved out of the, the slabs of the walls of Jericho, there were different homes that would let travelers in and out. And these two spies identified the household of the character Rahab. Maybe it had a neon light, R&R Hotel, Rahab's place. It says this, They went and came into the house, of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And they lodged there. Here was a shanty of a shack in the slums of Jericho. And this lady, Rahab, known for making a living by selling her body to strangers traveling in and out of the pagan city. Now, I just want to pause here. We, we don't really know. Scripture doesn't share with us how she got into this predicament. We don't know if it was by choice. We don't know if it was coerced. We don't know if one day she came to a career fair and she was um, just deciding the options. Do I want to be an engineer? Do I want to be a teacher or a nurse? No. In this pagan culture of Jericho, prostitution is the most profitable career path, and, and she chose that. Or we don't know, maybe as a result of just being in the slums and poverty, maybe she was um, in this situation because of the oppression of society and she was a victim of human trafficking. We have no idea. Scripture does not clarify how she found herself in this lifestyle. What we do know is that she did live and carry out this lifestyle. Quite well, if, if that was what was ID'd by these two spies trying to gain access to the city of Jericho. What we also know, though, is um, verses like the New Testament in James chapter 2. It says the hospitality that this lady Rahab showed actually demonstrated eventually a transformation of life. Demonstrated that she had come to faith and was transformed from this sinful lifestyle of a pagan culture. Whether she was born into it, forced into it, or chosen at some point, she eventually came to a transformation of life by placing her faith in the God of Israel. What else do we know? Jericho was steeped in this type of pagan culture, so this was the type of lifestyle she was living out. And look what the next few verses describe for us. As the men were lodging there at Rahab's place, verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out 
all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So here's where I just, I want us to pause for a moment. Really, um, the narrative style of Scripture is where we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we try to situate ourselves in the text, really allow the context and the details just to fully immerse us in what took place. And so imagine for a moment, may, maybe you're one of those two spies. You've gained access to the city through R&R Hotel, and Rahab has hidden you because you hear the commotion of the king's authorities coming in, knocking and demanding that you be turned over to the officials. These two spies, they're, they're out of sight, but... They're still in earshot. They, they hear the king's authorities demanding they be handed over. And I can't help but imagine what's going through their minds at that point. I mean, at this point, they've, they've made it through the wilderness. They're of the next generation going to take the promised land. Joshua says, it's time. Go, you two, on this reconnaissance mission. Trust the Lord. He's given us everything. They gain access. Rahab brings them in. Rahab even hides them when the authorities get there. But now they hear the commotion, and they must have been thinking at least for a moment in their human nature. This must be it. No way is this woman who sells herself as goods and services going to be loyal to us. She just met us. She doesn't know who we are. She doesn't even know who we came, where we came from. This must be it. Certainly, I just can't help but imagine they're trying to hide. They hear the commotion of the king's authorities, and, and they're just thinking, we had a good run, but this, this must be it. Our mission is ruined. Devastation is certain. And I can't help but think either, regardless of how they found themselves there, regardless of what they're being overwhelmed by, having faith in the God of Israel, surely... Somewhere in those moments of commotion of the authorities at the door, they are beseeching the God of all creation and saying, Oh, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, be merciful toward us. Please, Father, would you keep us from what seems like certain ruin and devastation. God, I don't see any way out of this. We are stuck. We are up a creek. We have nowhere to go. We are placing our hope in this woman's testimony to the authorities. God, would you keep at bay the devastation that seems like we deserve in this scenario. And then we see the story transpire. We see this woman, Rahab, place her fear in the God of Israel more than the gods and goddesses that are worshipped in the pagan culture of Jericho. Look at verses 4 to 7, how it plays out. Right, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and then she responds to the authorities. True, the, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. There's a, a variety of meanings there, different layers. They, they weren't intimate with one another. They just had hospitable communication. She was taking them in, welcoming them in, um, in a God-honoring way. She says, true, the men came to me. I did not know where they were from. In verse 5, when the gate was about to be closed at dark, talking about the city gate among the fortified walls, when it was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But the reality was, 
verse 6 says, She had brought them up to the roof, hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. There were these two spies thinking, man, we had a good run, but mission is devastated. God, would you be merciful? Would you hold back what is pending certain devastation? And then by way of this woman, a pagan, She lies to the king's authorities. She has come to a place in her life where she fears the God of Israel more than the gods and goddesses of that pagan culture. She's come to a place in life she didn't fully realize Jesus, but she was fearing the the king of kings rather than the king of Jericho. Look what the passage continues to say about her testimony of faith in verses 8 to 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to him on the roof And said to men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. That all the inhabitants of the land melts away before you. See, so many times we get so caught up. Wait a minute, she's lying. Did God want her to lie? Is God telling us it's okay to tell a lie sometimes? That's not the point of this narrative. The point of this narrative is that the allegiance of her heart has radically shifted and she is now demonstrating the overflow of her heart's faith on God of Israel versus what it previously was, one being loyal to the king of Jericho. She says, I've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Hebrews 11 says, based on this welcomed hospitality, it is clear that this woman Rahab was a woman of faith. And what Scripture preserves in here, deceiving the enemy, the king's authorities of Jericho, is that the allegiance of her heart has shifted. And we know by by support of New Testament passages like Romans 13, when authorities are calling you to a place of violating your faith or your conscience based on the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're called to submit to God and not the government of this world. That's what Rahab did in this moment. Based on her newfound allegiance in God of Israel, she was loyal to him at all cost. We should think about that for a moment. By way of this prostitute, God provided this miraculous mercy of protecting these men. There's certain devastated mission that, that they deserved, like just being wrapped up and having no way out. God protected them through Rahab. But think about when those king's authorities were at the door. She had a choice like never before. Think about the daily lifestyle she experienced, whether by choice or being forced. Daily unfulfillment, one after another. Depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, no way out. But then the authorities come to her door 
And she's got two men of worth that she can offer the king of Jericho like never before. She stands to profit like never before should she turn these two men over to the authorities. But she doesn't. Instead, she deceives them so they go out so that she can be faithful to the plans of God. And notice what comes as a result of her faith in the God of Israel rather than the gods and goddesses of Jericho. The mercy of God also protects Rahab and her household. So she hid them, she talked to them, she professed her faith in the God of Israel, talked about how there was no spirit left in the land, and she talked there in verse 11 how she affirms that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. And then verse 12 She says this, Now then, please swear to me by this Lord, as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the two spies said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. We see the miraculous mercy protecting these two men from devastation. And now we start based on Rahab's faith in the God of Israel. We see the miraculous mercy of God begin to provide this protection of Rahab and her family from deserved destruction. The story goes on in verse 6. It tells us in verses 1 to 3, Now Jericho was shut up inside, outside, because of the people of Israel. Right, The fortified city had walls and armies that would come in, enemies would come in. They would surround the city so that no one would come in and provide resources and um, relief, and nobody could leave and, and escape the, the certain doom. And so the army of Israel was around Jericho, shutting them up inside and outside. Chapter 6, verse 1, none went out, none came in. We're not talking about his dad, right? We're talking about none. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. And we know how the story goes on. So for six days, one, one um, revolution per day. They march around the city, the priests leading the way, the trumpets blasting, the people shouting their, their praises to the Lord and trust in the Lord. So day one, they march around nearly a mile and a half, the perimeter of the city of Jericho. Day two, they do the same. Day three, four, five, and six. And, and then it picks up in, in verse 15. Day seven is unique. On the seventh day, they rose early. Chapter six, verse 15. The dawn of day marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And we know that Sunday school favorite song, And the walls came tumbling down. Look in that last clause of verse 17. The faith of Rahab 
put into motion the miraculous mercy of God to protect her from a destruction she deserved. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. She was of the pagan culture. It doesn't matter if she chose it or not. She deserved to be destroyed. She deserved to be laid waste, nothing remaining. But the mercy of God stepped in and withheld the destruction of life she and her entire household deserved. God's mercy protects God's mercy protects us from devastation we deserve. God's mercy protects us from destruction of life that we deserve. Right now, I'm sure you can think of something in your own life in which you've made a choice or you've carried something out. And it's in violation of the standard of God's holiness. And as a result, you deserve nothing less of complete devastation. You deserve nothing less than just be completely ruined and destroyed. But then there's God's mercy. That says, should you profess faith on me, I have the power to withhold the wrath that your life choices deserve. And the reality on this side of the Old Testament is that not only does the mercy of God protect us from devastation deserved, not only does the mercy of God protect us from destruction deserved, but the mercy of God is so rich, rich and so deep and so wide, it protects us from the death we certainly deserve. And that's where we end this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, because that's the goodness of what we know through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 8. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. You had no way out. It, your life, that you knew it in sinful nature, was as good as dead. You had nothing to offer. It was certain deserved devastation in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. But God, rich in mercy, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when you royally messed up this last week and made a business decision that should just certainly ruin your reputation. Anything you've worked for is just totally devastated. But God is merciful. He's able to step in and Hold back what you deserve because he's just that good of a God. 
But God, you sought out with poor choices and every relationship you had has just led to destruction. Should you place faith in him and say, God, I would, I would love for you to insert your mercy because, Lord, I deserve something so destructive right now. And, and if you don't supernaturally, miraculously intervene and suspend the, the natural created order for a moment, I'm going to be ruined. I'm going to be destroyed. And it says in the richness of his mercy, he is able to step in and hold back what your sinful condition deserves. mercy of God protects us from devastation. The mercy of God protects us from certain deserved destruction. The mercy of God is so rich and so deep and so wide and sufficient that it protects us from the deserved death we had. The deserving wage, our sin, earned us to hang on a cross as a curse. But instead, God hanged in our place. So last Wednesday at our prayer service, we sang a song, Behold Our God, and it talks about, Behold Him taking the nails for us. It says, Behold our God seated on His throne. Come, let us adore Him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. Who has felt the nails upon His hands? Bearing all the guilt of sinful man. God eternal, humbled to the grave, Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Who has felt the nails upon his hands? We know there was a Jesus, God the Son, who we celebrate every Christmas, was come into this world, lived a perfect life, but he hanged on the cross, hands and feet held back by iron spikes, just so that should you profess faith on his death, burial, and resurrection as Lord, the eternal wrath that your sin deserves may be held back from you. But we know the mercy of God is never extended alone. But where there is the mercy of God holding back our deserved punishment, there is always His grace being extended to us to lavish on us something we could never deserve. But God the Father looks to us who profess faith not on our works, but the works accomplished by Jesus, that the one who was perfect died a death that we deserve, was buried and raised from the dead. And should we profess faith on that, not only does he hold back what the iron spikes didn't hold in his hands and feet back, but then he lavishes gifts of grace on us that only his eternal righteous son deserves. Oh, how rich. And deep, the mercy and grace of our God are. Do you know that today? Rahab was in a most disgusting slum of a situation. Regardless of choice or forced. But through faith, God's mercy and grace reached her. We're in Katy, Texas. We all look good. We've got nice clothes. We've got nice homes. We've got nice cars. We look like we have it all together. But the reality of our hearts, we look like the shanty slums and the slab of a wall in the city of Jericho. And we need to say, God, would you in your mercy hold back what my life deserves? 
Would you be so gracious to intervene miraculously on my behalf 